Tami Nui Kia Koutou Katoa. Welcome to Korotuturu Real Gold, the podcast series that explores all things heritage and research. Each year, Auckland Libraries works with scholars from the Auckland History Initiative, a research collaboration at the University of Auckland. In this series, we present research projects from the 2023 Summer Scholars, exploring aspects of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland's history. Students spend 12 weeks over the summer break exploring the varied and rich archives on a subject of their choice under the supervision of Professor Linda Breder and Dr Jessica Parr. Treatment and placement of the mentally ill and deviant quickly became a matter of significant social and cultural concern in colonial era New Zealand. In this track, Sasha Fine examines the process of constructing the Auckland Lunatic Asylum and grounds in the late 19th century. Um, kia ora koutou. Thank you everyone for coming today to our talk. Um, before I begin, I'd like to say a big thank you to our supervisors, Dr. Jess Pye and Dr. Linda Bryder. They've been amazing. Um, I'd also like to thank the University of Auckland for funding my research project and to the staff of the Special Collections at Auckland Library and at the University Library for being such great help with my research. So when I began research on the asylum, uh, it became apparent really quickly that it was a very overwhelming topic. Um, it was opened in 1867 and closed in 1992. So the, the history of the asylum spans a significant period of 125 years, during which time it underwent a range of name changes, building additions, and of course, significant change in the treatment of the patients. But what I was interested in about the asylum was the way that it was a structure built for a purpose that was very specific and a purpose that is a little bit foreign to us now in the 21st century. The way that mental illness was thought about at the time is completely different to how we think about it now. And the Auckland Asylum, as an example of a Victorian era asylum, remains a very visible reminder of that. Our built environments are often representative of our cultural context. And so I was interested in the asylum as this sort of purpose-built structure that endures as a representation of the cultural ideas and values of the society which built it. So in my project, I chose to look at what I saw was sort of a crux point, which was the actual establishment of the asylum itself. And my research ended up split into three main chronological sections, each of which I will cover in my presentation today. Uh, the first was the context and precedent for the asylum. The second was the actual establishment of the new asylum. And the third is the early years of the asylum. Just a quick note before I properly get into everything is that people also talked very differently about mental illness in the 19th century. And throughout my research, I have chosen to use the language that was used at the time in keeping with my source material. So words like insane and lunatics are outdated, um, but they also specify a slightly different scope than the term mental illness, which we use today. So I will be using them today for contextual accuracy. The Lunatics Ordinance of 1846 was the first piece of legislation in New Zealand concerning the treatment of the mentally ill. And essentially what this boiled down to was that anyone who was found to be a dangerous lunatic could be lawfully committed to a jail, a public hospital, or some public colonial lunatic asylum. And the wording on this last one was left pretty deliberately vague as New Zealand actually didn't have any kind of facility like that at the time. There was, of course, a precedent in the lunatic asylums of Britain, and so the wording in the ordinance was kept deliberately vague in the anticipation that New Zealand would probably soon build some institutions in that same model. And what this meant was that it was pretty common in Auckland and other New Zealand provinces at the time to confine dangerous lunatics to the jail. For context, uh, this is a painting of what central Auckland looked like at the time. 
this view is roughly from the top of Queen Street. Um, what you can see is the stream in the foreground is sort of the route that Queen Street takes today. This building here with the grounds is Government House, which is of course on the university campus today. And this little collection of buildings here is the Queen Street Jail, which was the first jail in Auckland. And that's roughly where the ANZ building is today on Queen Street. Uh, this is a closer look at the jail buildings. Um, that's Queen Street running across the front there. And that is Victoria Street West there. And from left to right there, you have the courthouse, the guard rooms, the stockade, that's the actual jail itself. And then behind is the gallows up there. There are pretty consistent reports throughout the 1840s that lunatics were confined to the jail both before and after the passing of the lunatics ordinance. So for example, uh, this 1843 article in the Auckland Times reports the death of a lunatic in the jail by visitation of God, uh, which is sort of an appallingly vague reason of death to give. Um, but keeping in lunatics in the jail served a purpose and they were kept separate from normal society. Anything that was deviating from the accepted social norm was dangerous, and so lunatics were confined for the safety of others. But of course, this was also an overwhelmingly Christian society at the time, and so there was a very strong moralistic undercurrent in their cultural ideas and values. And it wasn't surprising then that as the 1840s drew to a close, public concern began to rise regarding the moral treatment of lunatics, that perhaps they should be confined in a way that didn't just prioritize the safety of others, but of themselves. People began to speak out about the impropriety of keeping the insane imprisoned in a jail, just like common criminals. And by the end of 1849, a petition had been signed by several influential figures and presented to Governor George Gray. The proposed asylum supported by Governor Gray was to be built in the Auckland domain on the hospital grounds. The construction was to be half paid for by public subscription and the government had agreed to match that amount. And the running of the asylum would be funded through the hospital endowments. As was the case with most public buildings at the time, a fair bit of controversy arose surrounding the proposed site, and there were several very passionate meetings of the Auckland Provincial Council to settle the matter. One of the concerns was about the proximity of these dangerous lunatics to an area of public recreation. And as this article in the Daily Southern Cross details, how on earth could anyone expose females and children to the freaks of some of the asylum's chance escaped inmates? And they call it preposterous and the very idea is an insanity. So despite this controversy, uh, the domain site was ultimately approved and the hospital asylum was built in 1852. So you can see the asylum here in this illustration. It's this little barracks-like building here. That is the main hospital building there at the top of the hill. This very sort of bushy area here is Grafton Gully and this is Simon Street. This is another perspective of the hospital asylum building. So this is a view taken from the hospital building itself. That's the back of the hospital asylum. And this is Grafton Gully along here, Simon Street running along there. And this image really gives a good idea of what a miserable little building the hospital asylum was. It was very barrack style, military and prison-like. Um, there's this post and paling fence, which you can see down below. And this was probably an outdoor yard um, for recreation, which was passionately advocated for by the provincial surgeon at the time. He was very concerned about moral treatment of the insane, and he wrote about the need for an outdoor area and a letter to the provincial council. But the hospital asylum deteriorated quite steadily, and by the time it had been opened a decade, plans were already being made to replace it. 
by all accounts, was hopelessly overcrowded and rather unpleasant. The provincial surgeon described it as makeshift and a prison. And an 1863 report detailed extensively the awful conditions it housed. The asylum at the time held 49 patients when it only had the capacity for 33. Two patients had already been removed to the jail for want of space. There was a general public outrage with the colonists reporting that the building is overcrowded by one half. The rain comes pouring in by the roof in wet weather. Three or four maniacs are compelled to sleep together in a miserable room. And the handful of keepers are often aroused by the shrieks of the weak and helpless attacked in the nighttime by infuriate companions. So it was with the failure of the hospital asylum weighing on the province that plans were made for a new, better asylum, one that would be modeled after the great lunatic asylums of Britain. The hospital asylum would remain open for four more years as the new asylum was constructed. Plans for the new asylum had been commissioned from an English architect and arrived in New Zealand in early 1863. They were assessed by a local architect, James Wrigley, who described them as simply designs and not working drawings and adapted them to his tastes. So what you can see here is a plan of the asylum as it was built. And this is actually only about half of the building that was originally planned. You can see here, this wing is meant to have a mirror image with this being the central sort of spine of the building. Um, the other wing was left off in the initial build due to budget constraints and wouldn't be added for another decade at least. These budget constraints as well as delays plagued the project from the beginning and they can both sort of be drawn back to issues with the brick tender, which was a bit of a disaster. And so although foundations had been laid in May 1864, by October the contract had fallen through and construction of the site had been at a standstill for over a month. The brick supply was taken up by Dr. Daniel Pollan, who was an Avondale local and a member of the Provincial Council, whose land bordered on the asylum site and who was a consistent supporter of the asylum project. This is a photo of the asylum building as it stands today. You can see all this sort of detailed brickwork around the windows and the doorway. And those are all original bricks to the building as it was built in 1867. Um, so the bricks weren't the only part of the building that were manufactured locally. And in fact, most of the resources used in the construction were completely local. Scoria was sourced from a local quality, quality quarry and wood was sourced from the Tisavangi Ranges. The New Zealander boasted that everything connected with this asylum is indigenous to New Zealand and all was formed and molded by Auckland men. The new Auckland Provincial Lunatic Asylum was opened on the 8th of March 1867 with very little fanfare and no opening ceremony. The Daily Southern Cross detailed the transfer of the patients from the old hospital asylum to the new, noting that the inmates of the asylum are to have more liberty and open air exercise in the future, which was a not so subtle jab at the inferior conditions of the hospital asylum. The new asylum was a point of pride, a physical combination of British heritage and New Zealand identity. The sentiment seemed to be that with the authority of having a proper lunatic asylum, Auckland could prove its status as a civilized settlement in its own right, and not just as some dubious outpost of the British empire. This article in the New Zealander asserts that the new asylum must ever rank as one of the most charitable and necessary institutions which has ever been founded in the colony of New Zealand. So while a definite improvement on the jail and the hospital asylum, the new asylum was still of course an institution and a product of its time. The original building contained at least two padded cells. Um, straight jackets were frequently in use. 
Other security measures included iron window sashes and doors and floors made of a dual layer of brick and concrete. The dormitories where patients slept were described as cell-like and had windows too narrow to climb out of. As you can see in this image here, this window is from the asylum today and it's about a meter in height and no more than sort of 35 centimeters across. The building was also relatively isolated. It was near enough to populated areas that it was accessible to visitors and suppliers, but also far enough away that patients were unable to see or access any kind of public thoroughfare. This account, written by a man who visited the asylum on a whim, he knew none of the patients and showed up completely unannounced, demonstrates the accessibility of the asylum to the public. He writes about these men and women kept behind walls and bolts from again mingling with the crowd for which, although they know it not, they are unfit. And this account sort of has the air of having taken a trip to the zoo, which is really unsettling from a modern perspective. By 1869, the Auckland Asylum had been open for just under two years and was home to 92 patients, 65 male and 27 female. The asylum grounds were 22 acres, with two acres each reserved for planting potatoes and vegetable crops. The asylum also sported a kitchen, a dairy, a bakehouse, some cellars and its own well. And like many asylums at the time, the Auckland Asylum aimed to be as self-sufficient as possible with the goal of employing patients and labour to produce much of their own food although by 1869, this potential had not yet quite been fully realized. The patients lived highly regimented lives. They were taken out twice a day for airing, but did not often leave the airing courts, which were yards hidden behind the building from public view. This was because there was a lack of proper fencing around the grounds and they were worried about prisoners, patients <laughs> escaping. Meals were carefully timetabled and distributed. And this excerpt from an annual report details the particulars the patients breakfasting at eight, dinnering at one, and having supper at six o'clock during the summer months. You can see that for each meal, the rations were detailed here. For breakfast, each patient was allowed half a pound of bread and one pint of tea, while dinner was a pint of meat and vegetable soup with meat and potatoes and another half pound of bread. And cutlery privileges were only allowed to a small help handful of very well-behaved patients. But it was not all as militaristic as it may seem and entertainment was well provided. The asylum sported a library made up of books donated by the community, as well as indoor games like cards, dominoes and drafts. Patients participated in singing and music lessons if they were able to. And a monthly entertainment night was held which included plays, recitation, music and dancing and was open to the members of the public as well as patients. You can see here, there's a list of names of notable people who attended. And it was clearly a point of charitable pride to be seen attending such events. So overall, it is obvious that the asylum was an improvement on the jail. And it's easy to look at this as sort of an upward progression from the jail to the hospital asylum to the asylum proper. But of course, it still wasn't a pleasant life by today's standards. And in the coming decades, the asylum would see allegations of abuse and maltreatment of patients that would unfortunately continue on for the next hundred or so years it was open. You've been listening to an Auckland Library's Heritage Talk. Student research undertaken by Frederick Vaught, Katia Kennedy and Samuel Turner O'Keefe was supported by the Auckland Library's Heritage Trust, John Stackpole Scholarship. To find out more about the work of the Auckland Library's Heritage Trust, visit Auckland Library's website. 
These talks are also available on the Auckland Library's YouTube channel. Thanks to the Auckland History Initiative and especially to the student creators for this talk series. Check out our other podcast offer and follow to be informed about new content being published on this platform. Matewa.